I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing From What Is to What If, which will be published on October 17th by Chelsea Green Publishing. One of the perks of running this website and of writing From What Is to What If has been the opportunity to speak to some of the people who have had the biggest impact on my own imagination. Today's interviewee, John Crowley, is one of those people. I first read his novel Little Big sometime in the mid-1980s and it blew me away. About a year later, I met the woman who was later to become my wife and it turned out that prior to our meeting, she had not only read the same book, but the actual same copy I had read. Little Big is an extraordinary work of fantasy which the Washington Post described as a book that all by itself calls for a redefinition of fantasy. Crowley has written many other novels, short stories, screenplays and essays, and also teaches creative writing. It was such a thrill when he responded favourably to my request for an interview. It was such a thrill when he responded favourably to my request for an interview. He opened our conversation with some reflections on the imagination and the times in which we live. The older I get, and I'm now 76, the, the more I think that the imagination really, in a possibly never able to be described way, actually alters the world. And I'm thinking that, I, mean, I posted to my Facebook page this notion or feeling that I had, have had <clears throat> lately that um, it is really very weird and disorienting to feel or think that as I get older and get around to dying, so is the world. I mean, it changes around you so mysteriously. Mm. Our place, I mean, we live in one of this beautiful environment in New England, and uh, uh, but all around us, Trees are dying at this incredible rates, mm, mm. and the weather doesn't behave, and everything just seems like weak and falling. <laughs> and you get this sense, oh my God, we're going to go out together, and this just can't be possible. It just can't be. Mm. But you feel it anyway, it's, and it's not like I, I suppose that this is going to be the case. But at the same time, I'm haunted by the sensation of it, mm. which I wouldn't have in any other time period before yeah. we knew that the earth was in this kind of trouble it wouldn't have happened you die and of course everything's going to stick in fact it was one of the greatest things about dying was everything will go on as it was before whether you're there or not and they'll remember you and think about you so and so i don't have any guarantees of any of that no no i i i read a recent blog that you wrote where you said that you were talking about the cuban missile crisis and you said you said that end of the world seems less far likely seems far less likely now um, yeah. and, and you wrote as well about climate change. You said, I've no idea how we will survive climate change, but we will. And so, <laughs> so I, I wondered, I wondered how, which is not necessarily a, a confidence that I, um, <laughs> that I share, no. I guess. So no, well, I, I think it was, it was whistling in the dark in a certain sense. I don't know that we will okay. actually, even though I might've said it once. Okay. So uh, no, you... I don't, I, I, I suppose that, I mean, you know more and far more about this than I do, that <clears throat> there must be ways forward in some way yeah. that we can identify. Uh, and maybe some of them are illusory, um, like the new plan to drag out billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere with some sort of engine that is, you know, <laughs> supposedly on the drawing boards. 
But you know, I, I keep I often in this context think of a science fiction novel I read. I think it was I might have been in high school. I'm not sure. But the premise of this uh, novel, whose name I can't or author I cannot remember, and the premise was that it had that astronomers had discovered that the sun was about to uh, increase in temperature or send out a sudden huge vast heat wave toward earth and it was going to do us in it was going to just kill everything and so on and so uh people start thinking about their uh ways to uh, escape this fate uh, people dig down under the earth and put in air-conditioned shelters and uh um stuff like that other people say oh no no the sun would never harm us if this is coming from the sun it has to be good and they go out and, and sunbathe constantly in order to build up their strength to receive the new the new heat from the sun and other people do other things and uh of course the government is is focused on uh, building a gigantic uh spaceship that will take us away from earth which is going to be done for and I, the whole the thing and at a certain point, all this, most of the novel has to do with the space travel. You know, I didn't even read that, but I got to the point where the the sun thing really does happen on the date given, and uh, sun tanner, sun worshiper people rush out of the sun to greet the new sun and get burnt to death, or you know, his so blistered they can't go on. The guys down in the holes in the ground with their air conditioning, the air conditioning, of course, stops working very quickly, and they suffocate and die in their holes in the ground. And every single hope that they had was absolutely uh, human stupidity and uh, absurd hopefulness and, and reliance on you know human value and human knowledge. It was, I was just terrified. I can remember this feeling of just awe at this elimination of human beings from their own silliness and wrongness and and actually the impossibility of surviving this thing, mm. which they don't at the end of the, the rocket which was sort of looked at as kind of a hopeful hopeless adventure is the only one that survives and the cover even had showed a picture of this rocket ship on it with the huge masses of people rushing toward it and trying to hold on and grab hold of the machine as it ascended into the air. They're all falling off as the machine takes off into outer space. It was, it was, a, it was the kind of crap science fiction that can have an enormous effect on yes. you if you read it at a certain time. It sounds like it. Yeah, I wondered, uh, what for you does it mean to be a writer of stories during the Anthropocene, you know, during during this time when, as you said, you know, all of a sudden, the things that felt certain don't feel so certain anymore. Uh, I, well, the last novel that I wrote, I, I, I don't think that I paid any attention to it in previous novels, except for one. My first novel uh, was first first written. It wasn't first published. It was called it was this book, Engine Summer, in which, um, as a result of uh, human stupidities and uh, you know ruination of the earth it wasn't really climate changes. I don't think I knew that concept in 1972 when I was writing this book. But the earth has completely changed anyway because uh, through various 
catastrophes over the course of 100 or 200 years. I don't know how far in the future I exactly pretended this to be happening. But there will be disasters sufficient that the entire um, social structure has just vanished. It's gone away over time, fallen like the Roman Empire. It's like walking around the Roman Empire, walking around Rome in like, you know, 1500, and there's nothing left, you know. Uh, but in, in my book, there's also the population has stopped, which I think is actually kind of um, foresightful of me in a way. You know, young people nowadays are not having children. They're not even getting married. They're not having sex very much. In America, in the young people that I read about in the newspapers, I don't know anything about their sex lives actually, but um, it seems that this is the case. And in, and in my, my book, this has been, what has happened was that the fear of overpopulation caused there to be this general application of a medical uh, genetic change in women such that you have to take another drug or a pill or, or a, a medication of some kind in order to start off the possibility of getting pregnant. Therefore, every child has to be uh, desired or wanted. Yeah. Mm. And, if, and if you don't get around to it or you feel funny about it or scared of it, well, you don't have it. Just don't have it. So the population has shrunk to almost nothing. And the reason that the book was called Engine Summer was because um, there's a phrase, and it turns out to have two different meanings, one in English, one in English, British English, and one in American English. American English is a corruption of Indian summer, which means the warm period after the first frosts sets in. There's a warm period coming back, and it's called Indian summer. But of course, they didn't, the old Americans didn't call it Indian summer, they called it engine summer. Okay. And uh, I was once in uh, in Mallorca, Ibiza, actually, and uh, some guy you know, I met at a bar had found this book. And he said, well, this, you, this, this book's called Engine Summer? No, no, no. The book should be called Engine Summer because that's what we of the Raj called that cool period in the fall when we all went up to the mountains, the hill uh, cities and towns and got away from all the heat. That was called in Indian summer in British sense or Indian summer. I said, no, 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 that's not right. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. This is American Indian summer. Anyway, enough of that. But it, it, it was a book about spoliation of the earth and mm -hmm. published in 19... Well, it wasn't published until... Uh, I think 1979, but I actually wrote it in the early early 70s. Mm -hmm. Where so. do you, as as a as a deeply imaginative person and uh, and someone who has spent their life exploring and expressing their imagination, where do you feel like your ideas come from, and how do you keep your imagination in good health? Does it require <laughs> Does it require in 2019 strategies to protect your imagination or to keep it or to keep it in good health that's, that's really an interesting question to which i really don't have an answer um <clears throat> the only thing that one thing that has kept my imagination 
as fresh as it is, however fresh that might be, is that I've always had a profound interest in uh, oddities of human history. Almost all my books, at least from the first two or three, which were straight, you know, one was this futuristic fantasy and another one was, you know, planetary romance. But ever since then, they have all been about history in some sense, and especially a reimagining of history. Uh, not exactly to uh, re recover history, but to transform it by tools of fiction, so as to make it more uh, revealing or more uh, I mean, people who know a little bit of, of history or read history casually or for interest or whatever um, <clears throat> have an idea of what it is, but there's probably insufficient or, you know, limited or whatever. So you try to wake them up by casting a history in a completely different way, in a new way, and uh, um, try to make it profound to the reader that there was once a land or country or time like this but it's not what you think it was. It's not what I'm telling you because I'm making it up. But you should know that that history is still there waiting for you to understand it, mm -hmm. if you can. And that's one, that's, that's, that's one thing. And the other thing, I, I, a lot of it is negative. I don't want my imagination to be, to be taken over by these... Um, this general de gringo law that's all around me all the time. And I say, I, don't, I cannot allow myself to be subsumed in that. So it's a kind of a vigilance more than anything else to keep your imagination eh, insofar as it can be. Uh, I mean, it's got some holes in it based on my age already, but at least I'm gonna fight to keep it away from being swept up in that thing. And I mean, I'm sure if people, as, if you are trying to, if you personally are trying to say, I need a positive way of understanding this awful thing that we have got to fight, um, you are going in a realm of imagination about mm. what could be possible, what might, what crazy thing might work, you know. Mm. Uh, and, but there's a whole lot of other uh, parts of that, this being affected by all of that. Like those people in the in the uh, science fiction novel, who are who are just making a mess of it by trying to defeat it in all the wrong ways and arguing with one another constantly and blaming each other, thinking it has something to do with politics or something to do with scientists or something to do with something else other than this uh, thing that is beyond and above all of that stuff. And I don't want my imagination to be caught into those kinds of throws. If you know what I mean. Mm. So, uh, uh, which doesn't mean I don't pay attention to it or you know read articles. I read Bill McKibben too. I read all. I, I gather information about all. But uh, and, and it's, in a certain sense, it is. That's my civic duty to do that. <clears throat> but it doesn't really uh, shape my imagination. Mm -hmm. I try not to make mm. shape my imagination. Um, you, I wanted to ask you about the future. So that you, I wrote, read an essay you wrote called The Next Future, 
And you wrote, in, instead of growing clearer as we probe it, the future has grown dimmer, less solid, almost hard to believe in. But the past has continued to expand rather than shrink with distance. The actual things we did have gained rather than lost complexity and interest. And the past seems rich, its lessons not simple or singular, a big landscape of human possibility, generative, inexhaustible, which I thought was just beautiful. Uh, and, <laughs> well, that's and, exactly what I'm saying. Well, I've just been trying to describe to you. Yeah, that guy wrote it better than me. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I wondered. I wonder why, because it's it's one of the things in the book that I've just been writing that feels really important to me, which is that at the very time in human history when we should be looking at the future and thinking, yeah, we can do that. And we've got these challenges, but we can do this. We can do this. We can we can redesign that. We can reimagine everything. We need to do the economy in a different way. We need to do the energy system in a different way. The transport system in a different way. And that time when we should be looking up positively towards the future, actually, what we're seeing is this emerging of this sort of retrotopia. You know, this idea that the past was better, and the future seems to be slipping out of our fingers. And I wondered why why you feel the future is kind of slipping from our grasp because when i was a kid and i grew up all the comics were all full of the future we'd go on a holiday to the moon and we'd all have hoverboards and all this kind of stuff but it feels like the future now we're turning away from the future and and the the, the past feels safer and more familiar somehow i see that very much i think that the passage that you read is in a certain sense um rhetorical but it also is genuine and 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 uh deeply felt but, I mean, I think that the reason that the future seemed so uh, hopeful when I was young, when I was young in the 1950s, uh, post-war, it was like, it, you know, seemed very, very hopeful in, in so many ways. But you didn't have this other threat that nature was somehow sick or we had caused it to be sick, even though that was completely on, ongoing in the 1950s already, by, for sure. And, uh, but... You just you didn't notice that, so you could imagine futures that that didn't depend on any of those kinds of failures, unless they were made up, like this, you know, bursting of the sun kind of thing. Uh, but uh, you just didn't feel it, so that there, there was a, a kind of hopefulness, or at least an intense interest in what the future would bring. You said, "What is it, what's it going to be? Are we going to have aliens come visiting? Are we finally going to get in spaceships and go to other planets?" Or is it going to be atomic bombs and destruction? We're going to have to live with the results of that. Or is it going to end? You could have all kinds of possibilities. They were intensely interesting, all of them. And I think, I, I feel like it might be just me and my age. They have ceased, they have lose, lost interest for me. Those kinds of possibilities, which are, a lot of them are now, you know, discarded. <laughs> the ash heap of history, as Trotsky said. Um, and but it does not um, cease to uh, puzzle and interest you. I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's got, to, got to be the case, even though I can't perceive anything going forward that is anything like the sorts of things we conceived of in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, who is... I suppose we're still going to go we're to back to the moon of all the useless things you can think of doing. Uh, we've been there. We've done that. There's nothing there. But uh, uh, I suppose, I mean, you get a big kick out of like 
big projects like that, but this is a big project we already did, and we can look back on it and see it all happening, and, you know, watch all those guys and all their dozens and dozens of computers that, you know, are less powerful than your phone, <laughs> and, uh, you know, running to the moon. It was wonderful. It was great. It was passionate. It was delightful. And we can celebrate it. But I can, can you really get real excited about doing it again? I mean, it, it seems like so many other things of, of greater uh, necessity than that mm. that you could imagine doing. Mm. I mean, I was asked in that same essay from which you took that uh, essay about the future uh, to, you know, describe how you, can, you know, imagine the future. And uh, that's why my my answer was to that, to my editor's request. I said, okay, well, I think that there's always a future that somehow stands at right angles to the present, never comes to be. You pass through a right, the future to another future to another future, another future. And the only way you can predict the future is to take everything that's predicted right now and reverse it. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> so that no, that none of those things are going. None of those terrible things are going to happen. And I went through them one by one by one. Finally, I ended up with so the the only answer is uh, universal love and uh, total uh, one one uh, world government and um, uh, everybody taken care of and. Not, but not in any kind of model based on past utopias or socialist utopias. It's just like I called it anarcho totalitarian state. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's, I mean, that is an imagination of the future. That, that is, that is, well, if you say that your sense of the future is dimming, like I said in that paragraph, then the only answer to that is more imagination. Yeah. Some kind. Uh, and you can, I mean, we know that you can inspire people to do things with the craziest kinds of dreams. I mean, just look at, you know, uh, the apocalypse and, uh, the thousand year millennium, of Jesus coming back and making everything right. Those things inspired, you know, huge activities on parts of, parts of people. And even after they gave up on it as a fact, it still seemed to be. Uh, an inspiration to like social workers and social scientists and and uh, divines and and Christian social workers for in the 19th and early 20th century it was a huge thing for them. Even though they were kind of in the process of giving up the idea that this would really happen or was about to, happen. the only ones that thought that were these crazy fundamentalists. So you know they were you know getting away from becoming modern thinker people, but they still had this sense of a good world was ours to earn. It was going to happen. And we were on the road to it, and it would get better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that kind of got lost. One of the things that always stands out to me in in your writing is the the depth and the 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 size of your vocabulary and you use words i've never used before and i i consider myself someone who reads quite a lot like i read it in one thing i read you talked about the vastation of the bomb i've never heard vast and you talked about something as being full of vatic force vate vatic force um, if our language becomes simpler and less complex and we lose such words and we're seeing this kind of 
sort of homogenizing of our language and our losing of lots of the more difficult words like vastation and vatic and things we were I don't know any I've never heard anyone use those words like if 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 our language becomes more and more simple what does that in turn do to our imagination do you think I think they're very very tied together I think that I mean I can't help but think that maybe I'm wrong I mean it's possible that Native Americans, you know, who are speaking English in the in the southwest of America have imaginations bigger than I can conceive of, but their their vocabulary of English words is very limited. Uh, so it may not be a, that big a deal, but it is to me. And I I do think that that the loss of of not only individual vocabulary words, but ways of putting sentences together. And uh, complexity—not complexity, but fullness of rhetoric, fullness of of meaning—take makes sentences long <laughs> and uh, and meaningful. To that extent, I think that that. I mean, I read all the stuff that everybody reads. I read, you know, Facebook posts, and I don't have Twitter, but I read Facebook posts and stuff in the news, and I say things are getting thinner. They're just getting thinner, not partly because there's less of less exact vocabulary but also just because people stop the sentence before it's even gotten underway and cannot complicate it complexify itself by how you end up you know that so that the end of a sentence will reflect what you started with at the beginning and i think that's just it's very uh i mean you go back to the past and look at old newspapers they weren't so hot you know they've, they've always been done as quickly as they possibly could be to get done but they were still better written than now and i think that young people especially coming up are losing this heritage in a way that is very i taught creative writing for 20 years and a lot of the students were had a great grasp of interesting language and could turn phrases and they could build sentences competently and even interesting, fascinating, but um, most of them were, were um, only comfortable with a simple kind of language, which they could ascribe to a theory of fiction, how fiction could be written, minimalism, all that, <clears throat> so that that would justify their use of, you know, no adjectives and short words, <laughs> things like that, uh, which you can't argue with them. It's I. I uh, I'm unwilling to talk them out of it, except to say, "Well, try and look and read this guy. <laughs> he does things that you can't even, you know, you're not even aware of. The different universe. Uh, so, no, it's very important. And I, I post on my Facebook. I don't know if you look at my Facebook, but a lot of things I post on my Facebook are quotes from, the, like, the New York Times. How can they? What are they doing? Why are they using this word in this bad way, in this wrong way? Why is the sentence such an awful tangle? It's just Today I was trying to post a uh, post about how one of the Democratic primary contenders had done something or other, made a sweeping post, and it, somehow this had caused everybody else, all the other candidates, to frenetically try to keep up with this, with what they had to, to do to confront him. I said, frenetically, is that right? Or is it, are they frenetic, or are they frenzied or are they frantic so then i had to go and ponder the differences between all these words which all have the same root in greek as it turns out 
What is it, frenetic or frantic? What's the difference? And it's, there isn't, I mean, you can say there's frenetic activity, but you can't say, and you can say that it's frenzied activity. But if you say that, that somebody is uh, stuck in a um, frenetic uh, mode, he's got to be doing something. Be acti- act- frenetic is about activity. Whereas, uh, and frenzy is also about activity. But the other third one, what's the third one? Is, uh, f- not fanatic. Can't remember, I can't remember the third word that's connected to those. This is another problem of being old. <laughs> I just wrote these this morning. I've forgotten them already. They'll come back. They'll come back. <laughs> In the course of this, I'll, I'll remember what I can come up with. So one of the things that that we've seen over the uh, in recent years is the decline in in the in the amount of reading of books, like the the, the, oh, yeah. the sales of books oh, declining, yeah. the amount of time people spend reading books declining. What do you think we lose in our culture when we stop reading books? Well, first of all, we lose uh, familiarity with most of uh, the thinking and. Uh, imagination uh, of our species because it was I mean there was a point not very long ago when it was when you had pictorial art uh, and uh, plastic art statues and stuff in books that was it I mean if you if you wanted to connect yourself to thought and to imagination and to possibility and to uh, moral uh, uh, hectoring or prayer or any other, you had to read books. There wasn't any other source for any of it. So uh, it's only then things gradually, new media comes along and, th- and stories become taken over by movies and then television and uh, um, thought and, and opinion gets taken over by the internet and so on. Then you are only familiar with the, hist- the history of thought not for the last 20 years or, or less. Uh, maybe not just last week is all you remember from the arguments and so on that you read. But the history of thought and belief and knowledge is all contained in books that are much older than that, much older, hundreds of years old. And if you aren't familiar, if you, if you cannot pick up a hard book, I mean, suppose you pick up, I don't know, uh, The Anatomy of Melancholy or... Uh, Plato's dialogues or um, anything like that. If you cannot, if you don't have the tools to begin to read them, they're going to be forever close to you. And the only way you can have the tools to read them is to read enough where they are quoted from or referred to, or at least they use ideas and so on in such a way that you get used to the idea of thinking in ways like that and looking up words like you were just puzzled by Vatic and Vastation. You gotta look them up. I mean, <laughs> that's all. And that actually is one of the great things about you can look it up in a second and get it. You know, you don't have to go over to your you know, uh, wall of dictionaries and you know, sort through. You get it in a second, which is uh, a great, great advance. Mm-hmm. And it would help you to be a great reader. And I have nothing against ebooks or. Uh, listening to books, except I think that uh, there is a connection to the words on the page that's different from words in the ear. 
And uh, I think the words on the page are uh, a, a, an experience that is richer than books in the ear. I'm, I know I'm not, uh, not alone in this idea, but um, I think that that's so. And, and also, words are, books are objects in a way that, um, of course, nothing on the internet is an object. It's just all you know, shadows, <laughs> so to speak. But uh, I mean, books have they have a, a thing you can take in your hand. You can open it up. You can smell it. There's a wonderful. Uh, if you go to my Facebook, you'll see there's a link to a TED Talk by um, Chip Kidd. Chip Kidd is one of uh, the greatest modern book designers and jacket cover creators. Uh, he's done books that just, you know, the, tech, the talk is about the books that he made jackets for. So you'll see, oh yeah, that one, I remember. Oh, I remember that. But he also has this oh, beautiful summation of what this is about books and how they, he says, the first thing I do is that this, he's kind of crazy gay guy. And he says, first thing I do when I get a book is I open it up and take a great big sniff. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I was reading about another guy who's who, uh, a Victorian writer whose name I know very well, but is not available right at the moment. Um, and who said that that's how he knew his books in his library because by their smell. <laughs> <laughs> and he said I can plunge into anywhere. I remember the time I read the book first, and and you know where I got it from, what it meant to me back then, just because of the smell. Well, you know, <laughs> I know what that's about exactly. Every, yeah. Anybody, I, I, you know, you've got a whole bunch of them over there on your shelf. I can see, and you can see mine above my head there. Yeah. And it's it's uh, they are they're they're not mere um, conveyors of information. They're far far more than that. And, and and I don't know if that's being lost or not. I mean, my daughter, who's now thirty, uh, both my daughters who are both 30, because they're twins, uh, read a lot. And they have read books all their lives. Mm. And uh, I'm not quite sure why, how they got this, except they saw their parents reading all the time, of course. That's one way. Mm. I can remember my daughter at age, I would say 12, trying to read Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm -hmm. I could see her in my mind lying on the couch with sneakers up and reading this book, and every once in a while she'd call over to me, Dad, what does this mean? <laughs> and some Scots word that Stevenson's using, you know, or some nautical term that's uh, in the book. And it was, But she just kept on. I was never sure she really loved the book. But it was a, a challenge to keep mm -hmm. on going, and she was continually interested in the fact of its existence, <laughs> that's for sure. It was really, it was really great listening mm -hmm. to both of them do this. Both of my daughters were readers in this. In fact, I read books I've never read, so mm -hmm. it can't be just me. You mentioned before you talked about when I asked you about about your how you how you keep your imagination in good health. You you use the word vigilance, and uh, one of the people I interviewed for this book was Douglas Rushkoff uh, mm -hmm. in New York, who wrote a book called uh, Present Shock. 
And he said to me, we've ended up over the last 20 years disabling the cognitive and collaborative skills that we would have needed to address a collective problem like climate change. Do you agree? And how do you how do you find that, you know, we, we, we have all these all the technologies that we're surrounded by and smartphones and social media that have this corrosive uh, impact on the attention span. How does one remain an imaginative person and have a relationship with those technologies? Is that one of the areas where the kind of vigilance you were talking about is needed? Uh, certainly. I mean, certainly you have to be vigilant about crap. That's that's uh, you know, almost about it seems almost every once in a while it will seem as though it's just about to sweep everything away in a tide of meaninglessness and you have to be incredibly vigilant about that it doesn't affect me much because i use so little of it. i mean i have a facebook on which i post to a bunch of friends and i mostly they're about you know books or you know whatever notions uh and so i don't feel that i am as much caught up in this as i might be or and as i know um, many, many people are. And I think vigilance is a great way of, of thinking about that. Mm. Uh, but you can't spend your life being vigilant about information that's coming in through you, to you from beyond. You can't just can't do that. It has to be a, almost a, uh, uh, a Buddhist sense that that mess that's constantly before you is suffering. And the only way you can... You can uh, withdraw from it, suffering is to say it's an illusion it's not real it's just stuff and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna admit it into my soul mm. except as stuff and it's so hard you you look at the news and somebody has done something unbelievably stupid and cruel again and you can't stop thinking about it but yet you cannot solve it you can't you can't make it better you can feel compassion for the people who do suffer and are hurt. Of course, you should feel that. But there's nothing you can do to turn the stuff that's coming out of the TV and out of the Internet at you and turn it into real stuff. It's very difficult. Hmm. And the Buddhists would say, well, that's just exactly what you shouldn't do because it's <laughs> I'm not a Buddhist. And I don't know what I'm talking about. It makes big sense. But uh, I think that that's, that's, yes, I think that you have to be vigilant to not be not be dominated by it i mean there are people who are killed themselves because of the news coming on the tv mm. you know and, and the awful things that have been done and the awful sufferings that have been occasioned <clears throat> by stupid people who don't know better and or do know fine just fine you know that causing grief and harm or who won't think about things like climate change who won't think about anything uh to to do with it even though there's some some of the solutions uh, at least mitigations are obvious, like not not using coal. I mean, how, 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 it'd be quite easy if we just all got together to do some of those kinds of solutions. They have imaginative solutions to them already exist. And yet, instead, you watch people on TV saying, yes, bring back coal. And just your heart just hurts yes. <laughs> from this. But you don't have to think about it. They're, they're wrong and you know better so i guess that's part of vigilance too mm. one of the one of the questions i've asked everybody so for the book i interviewed about 100 different people and i asked them all the same question which was if you had been elected as the president of the united states 
and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again. So <laughs> you had you had recognised that unless there was a cross societal wide, um, if that's a correct way of saying it, uh, I, I feel very conscious now about. <laughs> well, that's not quite right. If there was across society, there was this concerted push to revalue and rebuild the imagination to say our education system should produce young people who come out with their imagination like a superpower that our workplaces our public bodies should be nurturing the imagination wherever they can we should have arts and creativity uh, running through everything you know if if that was the aim was to you know, most governments talk about we need to maximise innovation. I always say innovation is something you do when your fundamental model works okay. But actually our <laughs> fundamental model is is driving us over the cliff. So we don't need innovation, we need imagination. And we need the, the ability to reimagine everything and not feel so attached to what we already have. But we need to be able to rethink things. If you If you were elected as President Crowley in 2020... And you God ran forbid. on a platform of Make America Imaginative Again. What might you do? What might two or three things that you would do in your first hundred days in office be? Good Lord. <laughs> not, not the kind of, uh, I mean, I am uh, outside my, uh, my uh, sphere of expertise in a big way. Um, but I, I would, I think that one of the things that I would early on attempt to do is to remake the United Nations. I was hoping that uh, that uh, Barack Obama, when he was done with the presidency, would, would somehow go and do that, because he talked about it a little bit when he was president. I was hoping he'd go and you know run for Secretary General of the United Nations and start to rebuild the United Nations as a genuinely representative body, not just uh, a talk shop, but one that was able not only to do things uh, actively and change, to make change, have agreements between nations that would be held, like, you know, uh, to be more creative in their thinking, and they would have to be held to it because we all agree that, because we're all in the United Nations. And um, I would work to that, to create that as, as an end. And I would also want to restore the United Nations' ability to do to have military power, to suppress uh, wars, to stop uh, invasions, to stop things like uh, the overtaking of the Ukraine by Russia, they they used to have this kind of power. Mm. I mean, you know, we went in and we did stuff because we were United Nations troops. They went into Africa, they did it, and they went into they stopped. They the Korean War was actually uh, a United Nations operation. We were mostly doing all the fighting and all the paying for it but it was still it was, it was mandated by the united nations they cannot do this hmm. the north can't the north korea cannot take over south korea we're going to stop so i would want to have a very cautious of course <laughs> uh mandate for the united nations to use military power that's one thing i would do hmm. um that's that is international of course the next thing to do is to try to get people to imagine that others are in a deep and profound way, not different from themselves. And that's the only way you can deal with uh, the immigration crisis. Mm. Because it has to, and it has to be, and again, the, the way to, the, we all know that the way to 
uh, solve the immigration crisis in the United States at the southern border is to change the countries from which they come. Instead of spending billions of dollars preventing them from coming in, you spend billions of dollars in the countries from which they come and make genuine democratic, help to make genuine democratic republics out of those places and give them enough money to uh, uh, make it so that people do not feel like they have to leave in order to live. Mm -hmm. I went to visit Costa Rica um, uh, 30 years ago more now. And it was the most amazing place I've ever been in at that time. I don't know what it's like now. Things that may have gone a little bit wrong. But Costa Rica was an amazing place. It had the advantage that it was so rocky and wild and so mountainous that it had never been taken over by white people very much. The Spanish uh, had very low level of, of... In fact, there weren't very many uh, native peoples either. It was just too hard. <laughs> So the population was tended to be mostly a homogenous, uh, sort of mixed native uh, white, uh, and it was it was a kind of a banana republic into the 1920s, 30s, and uh, then they had a kind of a little revolution. It wasn't a really very big revolution. They didn't have very many guns, but they had a revolution, and a guy came in as president of the country. And he said, all right, we're going to do different. We're going to do everything different. And first of all, he disarmed the entire uh, police force and national defense, national guard. They had no guns. Took those all away. He says, everybody has to vote. The people didn't vote for because it was all rigged. Now it's not. And he says, already everybody has to, everybody has to vote. And at least at that time, I don't know how it is now, voting was a national holiday. Everybody voted. Voting in the in Costa Rica was like 98% of the population. And people ran and they asked for offices and they wanted to vote for this guy for life. When he, when the, the 1949, I think it was when this came, they wanted him to run and be elected for life or at least run again after they elected him. A couple of, he says, no, 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 we don't get it. You have to have elections, you have to have parties, you have to have people running for us, not me. I did it, you know. I, you can't run it that way. You can't make a hero to save you. You've got to do it yourself. Mm. It, the place was so beautifully peaceful and, and remarkable that I went out once uh, with my wife and I were visiting, and we went out to this place where you could see a uh, it was a distinct but um, or extinct but not quite extinct volcano. And we went out there, and there was um, a bunch of people all very quiet, all Costa Ricans, almost all, except for us. And they had gone, and they sit in this little uh, stone amphitheater, and they're beautifully quiet. They're everywhere. <laughs> this country was beautifully quiet. And this guy, who was like, works for the Park Service in Costa Rica, they had huge parks, came out and started describing to us what this place was and how what the geology of it all was. And all these people just sat there so quietly and listening intently to this guy. And uh, he also was unarmed. He was actually a guard in this place, but no, no gun. And uh, um, they asked questions at the end. People would raise it. Do you, do you mean that this is what happened, or how did this? And he would give them a song. You know, and the answer to it was just so moving. And you knew that it couldn't be, but the case that 
park guards in Costa Rica are the elite of the society, <laughs> the most admired people in the society are these park guards. Mm. Because there are a lot of them, and they never—they don't have any arms. They all know stuff, and you know, they'll tell you about your country. It was just amazing. Fantastic. So, maybe the second thing I would do as president is to somehow try to get people to imagine the Costa Rican model, at least as it was in 1985. I don't know what it's like now. It's probably less good. Everything, is. but uh, so, somehow this is possible. So my so my last question is, um, you know, for me, when I read Little Big, it, it took me into a world that felt utterly credible and believable, fantastical and very real, kind of all, all at the same time. And I wonder, for people who want to become skillful at telling stories about what the future could be, you know, if, if it is possible that we could create a better future, it feels like one of the things that is really missing is the people out there telling the stories about what it will be. And, you know, first you could say, well, we will cut our emissions by 80 percent by 2040. But what would that world smell like and taste like and feel like? And what would we have for breakfast in that world? And how can we bring it alive? And what would people sing songs about in that world? I wonder, uh, as somebody who spent their life telling stories incredibly skillfully, what 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 advice would you have for the for, for people about how they might become better storytellers about bringing uh, bringing a future where it turns out okay to life today? <laughs> uh, I wish I could do that in such a way that it would actually make change. I'm not sure I have. I'm wise enough to do that, uh, but I do think that one of the things that it entails is to understand that human nature in itself, uh, love, fear, desire, wisdom, smarts, humor, wit, all that doesn't change really. I'm convinced that it doesn't. And if, so if you're gonna write a story about the future, one of the things that it has to contain is uh, realistic representations of human nature in the deepest way, in the same way that you find them in Tolstoy, in the same way you find them in Dickens, the same way you find them in Little Big, the same way you find them represented uh, in all of their richness and, and fullness. Because if you can't do that, none of the lessons will make uh, any sense. That's uh, I, I, how I figure, because you have not made it a world of human beings. You've made it a world of exemplars or paradigms or something like that but you have not made it a world i have i did a i did a, done, I have done a couple of courses in utopia both in writing classes and otherwise and but one of the uh and i always make students write a utopia you know, right and it has to be utopia it can't be a dystopia it has to be a utopia it has to be a good thing or at least a pretty good thing. and there's one that really knocked me out that this was very short a few pages but this one one student did this whole thing where uh, it was a long time ago, an email was fairly new, but the story was based on these two, two, two guys exchanging emails about some technical subject. Uh, you know, it's talking about how we can reestablish 
know, what ideas he had about you know, highways or railroads or international travel or space travel. I don't know what it was. But these guys are emailing each other back and forth about this. But every once in a while, this guy will send one of his friends another email about how his heart is broken because his girlfriend has has, has left him. And she, he doesn't understand why, because he, he, he thinks he's a nice guy and they got along so well. And then they try to get back on track with the project about, you know, bridges or whatever. And the other guy will come back and says, yeah, I know how it is, but, you know, you've got to keep up with it. I thought, I said, you understand what you've done here. You said that uh, the future and utopia cannot conquer human hurt and pain. That has to be part of the imagination. Mm-hmm. This guy is suffering the oldest, <laughs> probably one of the oldest sufferings you can ever have. Why? Because his girlfriend doesn't love him. He loves her. She doesn't love him. And that's not—that's the kind of thing that cannot possibly change. It doesn't seem to me. I mean, there's a lot of people now that almost feel like their love doesn't love is some kind of you know uh, scam <laughs> or something. And uh, so, it, but if, if uh, you were right, if you were to write stories about the future and stories about possibility and stories about how it all actually does come out okay and some of the ground for that. I'm sure you've read Kim Stanley Robinson's stories about this. Do you know his name? No. Oh, you should look him up, definitely, today. Kim Stanley Robinson, Pacific Edge. Okay. Is a, is a story about the future in which problems are solved. They're sort of 1990s problems, but they're still the problems. And yet they're just filled with ordinary human beings doing ordinary human being things. Uh, I'll send you, I'll send you a, a, a note. Thank you. Uh, about it, because he's really he's really amazing. Um, but that's what his that's because he is that kind of person himself. I mean, he he thinks about the future. He thinks about all these possibilities. He uh, condemns stupidity and all that. But at the same time, he's an enormously humane person himself, and regards that kind of humaneness as being a cardinal virtue. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's. If I have one piece of advice for people who are trying to do this, is don't forget you're writing. If you're writing fiction, your business is the creation of actual, real, live, living people, even though they're really not. They're just a bit of words. But uh, still, the thing that you are trying to do, you're trying to create, uh, you know, Anna Karenina, or mm. Madame Bovary, or whatever. That's what you're trying to do.